The Lord be with you. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to John. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the doors were locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit, whose sins you forgive are forgiven them, and whose sins you retain are retained. Thomas, called Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples said to him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands, and put my finger into the nail marks, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Now a week later, his disciples were again inside, and Thomas was with them. Jesus came, although the doors were locked, and stood in their midst and said, Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and bring your hand and put it into my side, and do not be unbelieving, but believe. Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you come to believe because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book. But these are written that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that through this belief, you may have life in his name. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. Today is Sunday in the octave of Easter. It's the proper and ancient name of the day. And it's in the light of that name that the name Divine Mercy Sunday or Sunday of Divine Mercy is added. And that's very, very important for us to understand because the primary celebration today is the victorious resurrection of Jesus. And therefore it is, as our readings remind us today, the victory of his mercy. And so for centuries, for centuries, long before the name Divine Mercy Sunday 
was applied to this day, the church on this day, which brings to completion its extended celebration of Easter Sunday, pauses in wonderment and rejoicing over the glorious reality of the mercy of God. And note how wonderful that is then. This is a celebration of victorious mercy, a celebration of mercy not simply that we call upon because we need it now, but of a mercy that has already acted, a mercy that has already triumphed, a redemption that has already been won. And to understand this, it can help us a moment to pause and consider a very important contrast between Good Friday and Easter Sunday. And I'm not speaking of the obvious contrast between the suffering and death of Jesus and his resurrection. I'm speaking of something much more near to us in our own experience. On Good Friday, Jesus is brought before the world. And the world, speaking in the person of Pontius Pilate, judges Jesus. And it's an odd judgment. Jesus is judged and pronounced innocent. And then he's condemned. That makes no sense, does it? It's completely unfair. It's completely wrong. He was judged to be innocent and not worth saving. And just linger with that idea for a moment. Because this is often a calculus that we make in our own hearts. The person may be right, but I'm not going to listen. The person may be speaking the truth, but there's something about that person which causes me to say, but I'm not going to believe anyway. The person may be basically good, but I find he or she is not worth my time. Notice how there's an element in our hearts that can easily play the game that Pontius Pilate played. I can recognize the goodness of another person, and yet at the same time declare them not worth my affection, not worth my love, not worth the time it would take to help them. For whatever reason, and I rarely put it with that kind of naked degree of honesty, but that is often how the heart works. And so Jesus, the one who is truly innocent and truly good, is brought before the world, and the world pronounces a judgment on him. And the judgment is, you're innocent, but not worth the effort it would take to save you. And so we send you away. How different that is from what we celebrate today, where Almighty God looked at the world, and God correctly and rightly judged the world as guilty, and then said, and it's worth saving. Note the difference in the heart of God versus the heart of man. When we apply guilt to somebody, the next thing we consider is the punishment, the consequence, the negative action that comes with the guilt. And here's the Lord looking at sin-fallen humanity in all of its viciousness, all of its pettiness, 
all of its wickedness, all of its self-destructiveness, he looks at it and he rightly pronounces, this is wrong, and you're guilty. And then he says, and I will save you. Note how great his mercy is. It flows directly out of the mystery of his justice and his judgment. In all justice, we should be condemned. That's what we deserve. And yet the Lord looks at us with a heart so overwhelmingly full of love that he says, despite your guilt, I will save you. And so we celebrate today this choice, that God looked at you and he looked at me. And he sees everything that's there. And he makes the choice, despite my guilt, to save me and to save you and to save us. Knowing that, how can our hearts not rejoice? And this is what St. Paul means as he writes to the church. Even though your eyes haven't seen him, your hearts are swelling with a joy that is tinged with glory because it points beyond any merely worldly happiness. It points to eternity itself. Pilate condemned Jesus as not worth saving in this world. And Jesus looked at you and said, you're worth saving for eternity. You are worth saving for a joy that cannot be taken away from you. For a goodness and a life and a perfection that will indeed endure and gloriously so. And you're not worth it because you've earned it. You're worth it because I've set my eyes on you from the beginning. And I loved you and desired to save you. What a great day this is. And so this mystery of the resurrection that we celebrate is the Lord rising away and out of the petty condemnation of the world, the rejection of the world, the unthinking brutality of the world, because it cannot destroy the mercy that he brings to this world. Note how wonderful that is. Even death is overcome by the mercy of Jesus Christ. And that is a hard thing for us to recognize. Hard for the disciples too. And this is why even on the day of the resurrection itself, we find them locked in by their fear, locked in by their depression, locked in by their anger. And when you're locked in, when you lock the door so the outside world can't get in and threaten you, you also can't leave. And so we see human hearts, even believing hearts, that are imprisoned in a certain way. Imprisoned by all of those merciless realities that haunt us. Imprisoned by the struggles and the defeats that weigh upon us. And into the middle of that, the risen Jesus appears. The locked door, the door of fear, is not an obstacle to Jesus. The locked door, the door of disappointment, is not an obstacle to Jesus Christ. The locked door, the door of my frustration and my anger and my discontent, 
the door of my hopelessness, the door of my addiction, the door of all the people I've lost and the relationships that failed. Jesus can walk through that door that I live behind and meet me there. He who broke out of the tomb will not be stopped by the little doors that we set up in our hearts, however big they seem to us. And appearing behind that door, he breathes his first gift, which is peace. Peace which stills fear. Peace which calms anger. Peace which soothes discontent. Peace that allows us to breathe and to catch our breath and to let our heart beat a little more slowly again. What a wonderful gift. And in that peace, there's a certain joyfulness. It's the joy of his presence. It's the joy that only comes with Christ. And so that we know the joy, he first gives his peace. We forget this. Before we can really receive the other gifts of the Lord, we have to let him give us his peace. Because that's what allows us to be still long enough to open our eyes with a bit of hope, even a little bit's enough, to meet him and receive him and begin rejoicing. And note how beautiful this is. And as the heart begins to rejoice, Jesus gives his second gift, which is his peace a second time. Note that. The Lord understands we have to keep receiving it because our hearts are so slow to receive it. Our hearts have a hard time holding on to it. But he gives us his peace even that second time. And out of that, everything else happens. And note how wondrous that is. And so we're left with this marvelous scene of the disciples rejoicing, receiving their mission, which is a mission of mercy. Note he doesn't say, go preach the gospel. He says, go and forgive. You too, look at this world that frightens you and see that it's worth saving. What a marvelous gift of the spirit of his own heart to the church at that point. See that frightening, sin-fallen world around you not as a series of obstacles, not as a source of anxiety, but as a place worth saving. And know those who dwell there as those who need saving and they're worth saving. Every one of them. And note how Jesus says, receive the Holy Spirit for that, because that is his spirit. That is his spirit. And then we have that marvelous encounter with Thomas right afterwards. Jesus leaves and Thomas, who wasn't there, shows up. And everybody's excited. Thomas is curious and he wondered what happened. And they say, we saw the Lord. Jesus was here. And Thomas says, oh, give me a break. You didn't. And on the one hand, that's because this is not easy to believe. On the other hand, however, there's something vitally important about the stubbornness of Thomas. Notice, Thomas is the only one of the 11 
who wasn't locked in. Thomas was outside. We don't know why, but he was in that dangerous world the other guys were afraid of. Maybe they ran out of food and he went for lunch. Maybe somebody had to just go and find out what was going on. Maybe he just never made his way back yet. But for whatever reason, he was out there and they were inside. And Thomas, the guy who was just outside, hears this testimony from those who were locked in and he doesn't find it to be convincing. What an interesting question that is. Is Thomas reluctant to believe because he's stubborn? Or is Thomas reluctant to believe because the testimony wasn't convincing? Or maybe both. But note how different the story reads if we ask that question. And so let's linger with Doubting Thomas. And full disclosure, I really like Doubting Thomas. Because Thomas essentially says to the disciples, you mean to tell me Jesus was here and he showed you his hands and he showed you his side and all you guys did was look? You mean to tell me that all you did was take a look and clap your hands? Note what Thomas says. I need to touch the guy. I don't need to see the nail mark. I need to meet it. I need to touch it. He uses this bold, even shocking language. I need to take my hand and put it into that side that was cut open. That's what I need. And Thomas, in speaking that way, is speaking on behalf of the world that's outside those doors, which wants more than news. It wants more than information. It wants more than nice little pious phrases that we repeat. It needs to meet the one who really did win the victory. And Thomas is saying, I got to know. I got to know that it's him. The guy I saw nailed to the cross, I got to know it's him. I got to make contact with what he did for me. And then I'll believe. The other thing Thomas is basically asking the disciples is, if you really saw Jesus and you really believe he's back, why are you still locking the door? Note the detail a week later. The same disciples are there, but Thomas is with them. And what does St. John write? And once again, Jesus appeared, although the door was still locked. Note how there's an element of insecurity that is still dominating among the disciples. Even though they saw the Lord and met the Lord, there's still something missing. There's still an element of fear controlling them, in a sense because Thomas is right. They haven't fully touched his victory yet. A frightened witness is no witness. A hesitant witness is a witness that moves no one. An Easter joy, which is tepid and merely celebratory, changes no hearts. And so here's Thomas speaking on behalf of everybody. And note how beautiful it is. 
Jesus appears and he stands right in front of Thomas, looks at him and says, okay, here I am. Here's my hand. Come. Put your finger there. Come forward. And he turns. Here's my side. Don't be shy. Step forward. I'm going to give you what you desire. Come, touch me and meet me. And Thomas, unlike us, doesn't stand there and say, no, Lord, I'm good. I don't need to. He comes forward and does it. He comes forward to touch the victorious wounds of the Lord. Not as scars, but as marks of honor and marks of glory. He puts his hand into that loving heart opened for us and makes contact with the mercy that saves us. Note how marvelous that is. He needed to touch and feel and meet the victory, and he does. And so it's doubting Thomas, the guy who wanted a stronger witness, drops to his knees. The other ten guys didn't do that when Jesus showed up. And he says what none of those guys said until that point. The single greatest profession of faith in the New Testament is by doubting Thomas after he touches the hand and the side of Jesus. And he drops to his knees. And from his knees, he looks up at his Lord and he says, My Lord and my God. This is why we have the Sunday of Divine Mercy. This is that day where the body of Christ gathers to make contact again with the fullness of all that Christ has done for us and the living reality of his victory. Despite how frightened, how guilt-ridden, how hopeless my heart might feel, we make contact with him today so that our own faith grows stronger our joy goes greater, and our witness out in that world is much more compelling because it's the witness of those who actually have touched the Lord, not just settled for a look. And how good it is that we can do that here because however locked the doors of your hearts are, he's coming right here. You notice we don't have a physical door to lock. He's going to be here. And we're going to look up. And I'm going to say, behold the Lamb of God. Remember what the reaction of the disciples was. They rejoiced when they saw the Lord. And in that joy, He will come forward to us. And He's going to be here at the front of the sanctuary. And he won't be speaking to Thomas, but he will be speaking silently to you. And he's going to say, get up. Come forward. Here's my hand. Here's my side. Touch me. Be not unbelieving. Meet me. Touch me, even though your eyes don't see me, and be blessed in your belief. And you'll stretch out your hand, and you will touch him. And you'll get more than a touch and more than a look. You'll receive him. And why will you receive him? 
because he looked at you, whatever guilt you carry, and he's already decided you're worth saving. This indeed is the day that the Lord has made. Let us be glad and rejoice for his mercy, in fact, does endure forever. Amen.